Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have a conversation with Phil Goodwin, Research Vice President of Infrastructure Software Platforms at IDC. He is responsible for IDC's infrastructure software research area and provides detailed insight and analysis on evolving infrastructure software trends, vendor performance, and the impact of new technology adoption. Now, in this episode, we discuss the best way for organizations to harness the value of their data, the role monitoring and alerting plays when keeping data secure and resilient, and the evolution of AI ML in data protection. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Phil. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great, Demetrius. It's great to be with you. Awesome. I am excited for this conversation. Why don't you start off just by giving us a quick overview of yourself and also your role uh, right now over at IDC? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I, I think I actually celebrate my 40th year in the industry this year, if you can believe that or not, Demetrius. Wow. Uh, so That's crazy. All it does is tell you that I'm, I'm getting up there in years. But I've seen a lot of, of very interesting technology and developments in that period of time. I've actually been covering backup and recovery since about 1997 and data protection in general uh, since about 2000. I've been either an industry analyst or a, or an industry consultant uh, in various capacities during that time. And I've now been with IDC for almost eight years, seven and a half years, I guess. Uh, I'm a research vice president here at IDC. And I am responsible for our coverage of infrastructure software platforms, but a lot of my focus really is on multi-cloud data management protection. So, so certainly a topic, as, as you know, I've been, been following it a long time. It's very near and dear to my heart. Okay, awesome. I appreciate you, you explaining your, your long history there, making yourself seem old, but I only see a couple gray hairs. I don't see like a full head. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot more than you might think, my friend. All right. Well, why don't why don't we get started with uh, maybe you just uh, giving us a an overview and rundown of I guess the best way from your perspective of how organizations can truly harness the the value of their data, uh, regardless of where it sits or where it resides, whether it's in the core, cloud, or edge. What's what's your What's your view there? Yeah, you know, you know the way I think about it, Demetrius, is what what I've come to coin the term of data logistics as really the basis of that. And, and as I said in my intro, I focus on infrastructure software for IDC. So that that's kind of my view of the world. And I believe that it is that logistics layer that enables the higher layers of value. And we can talk about data leverage and data engineering and things like that, but really to make the data available from the different repositories you talked about. And I think that analogy of data logistics actually runs pretty well because it's really how do you capture, how do you store, how do you move, uh, and how do you manage that data? 
throughout its life cycle. And if you think about the logistics of, of a package, you know, uh, it, something, a, a product gets stuck into a box, that box gets a label, and you can kind of think of that label as the metadata because it tells you what's inside the box. How it's going to get shipped is, is a description of, you know, how it gets moved from one place to another. Um, governance policies uh, would be how you, how you ship it. Are you going to ship it by slow boat? Are you going to ship it by FedEx? You know, those kind of things. So I really think it does come down to that data logistics. And when you mentioned across core cloud and edge, you know, it is how do you move that data? How do you recognize that data against the different repositories? And then ultimately, how do you present it so that it becomes usable? Once that package gets opened on the other end, how does someone take the contents out and then use it? And in this case, it would be used for things like data analytics or some kind of data leverage, data engineering. Those are the kinds of things that that are, are frankly above my pay grade, but those are the things that I think we enable from a logistical perspective. Mm, that, that's a really insightful answer. And as you were speaking there, I, I thought about your history, you know, within the in- industry, you said 40 years overall. And I, I just want to get your, your view of kind of the matriculation of the overall market. So everything was on-prem. And we couldn't imagine that cloud and virtualization and all of these technologies that everyone is implementing and rave about today would be maybe front and center. And that's the only way that some companies are actually going about rolling out new applications or, or services. What, what do you think has been just the overall driving force for some of the changes that we've seen, especially um, since microservices and serverless functions and technologies are kind of the new way of developing. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I think what you're really getting at is how we as technologists and in data protection as well are getting closer and closer to the application. If I think about what, what IDC considers the first wave, that's, that would be the, the mainframe era and that's where we were very system-centric and then we evolved into the, the client-server era, which would be kind of the second platform. Uh, and client-server, you know, we got, we got away from more of that system look to more of a, a device look. Then we got into the third wave, which is virtual infrastructure, where we're now getting into more into the virtual machine uh, type of environment. And I really believe that we're on the, the cusp of, of the fourth wave of the, of the industry. And that is really getting into an application-centric environment, getting around those microservices around the, around the application itself and getting closer and closer to that application and really, therefore, closer and closer to the data, which I think is kind of what you're, what you're driving at there, Demetrius. Yeah, I love the way you lay that out. Um, and we're in, what, the fourth industrial revolution, as they say? Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, maybe it tracks. I don't know. But at least it's at least an analogy. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that I'm still seeing is a lot of information and a lot of talk about ransomware. You think it's it's going away, but it's not. And, you know, you keep hearing about all of these different high profile attacks and you have uh, what JBL and the Colonial Pipeline. I mean, it's a long list of these different types of ransomware attacks. And you and I both know that it's an industry within itself. 
They have their own call centers and HR departments. And I mean, it's big business for these hackers and these nefarious actors to run ransomware as a service and all of these different things. But what do you think is the best way for organizations to to handle uh, something like, you know, ransomware and protecting their data from things like ransomware? What's the best way from your perspective? Yeah, I think one of the first things you have to, to recognize is the different ways that organizations are being attacked. And, and you brought up several of them. So if you look at Colonial Pipeline, for example, that was an interesting one because it got such high profile attention, but it really wasn't an attack on the data per se. It was an attack on device command and control. So they were taking control of those devices and, and denying access to them. Uh, then, of course, we have the more garden variety type of, of data ransomware attack where it's encrypted or deleted or scrambled or something like that. And, and from a data protection standpoint, that's what we focus on most because that's what we can, can address. But I can also tell you that one of the fastest growing areas is in data exfiltration. And in fact, according to our research, data exfiltration uh, can exceed uh, other types of ransomware by 50%. And the reason for that, I think, is once that data has been exfiltrated, once the bad guys have that data within their grasp, there's really nothing you can do. You know, from a, if, if the data's attacked, if it's compromised in some way, we have backup systems, we have immutability, we have, you know, other ways that we can can recover that data. But once the actual data is readable and in the hands of the bad guys, there's nothing you can do other than pay the ransom or, you know, suffer the consequences. You can hope they didn't get anything important and then say, you know, screw you, you know, go ahead, put it on the web. But unfortunately, in many cases, they don't know exactly what they're going after. And so they're able to get that valuable kind of data. So first is to recognize our, our limitations. We can do things like data encryption to help reduce that both in flight and at rest, and we would consider those best practices, but also to realize that we need to look at the preponderance of attack types that IT organizations are going to be suffering and that businesses will have to react to. Yeah, one, one thing I wanted to add, too, that you know, hopefully they don't have to pay the ransom, but we have seen cases, and I think I just saw a study that shows it was well over 70% of those that pay the ransom end up having another attack anyway. That That's right. In fact, we did some research recently where I think only 31% of the organizations were able to fully recover uh, their data without uh, having to pay the ransom. And of those who had been infected, more than 50% were reinfected after they had paid the ransom. Yeah, and it's, it's really important, yeah. So, exactly. I, I like to say that it's not a matter of if or when, but really how many times. Yeah. Yep, and that's the importance of, of having things like, like, are you alerted? Like, if something does happen, how long does it take for um, the bad guys to run reconnaissance? And I think studies are, they're in your network six months eight months, nine months, they're in there for quite some time, searching, scanning, hunting, looking for different vectors of how they could, you know, take advantage of, you know, a, a key system and to hold your, your data hostage. So my question for you, Phil, is, I guess, what, what role does monitoring and alerting play 
when it comes to keeping data secure and, and resilient? Yeah, what the areas that, that I'm seeing are being most monitored and, and alerting, things like that, which are very important, are being able to detect those known attack types. So things like encryption, being able to see encryption activity, renaming of files, IO activity spikes, and, and things like that. And what you mentioned about uh, the bad actors being in a system for weeks or months is true because what they found is that if they can fly under the radar long enough, you know, do things very small, very incrementally, then a lot of times they can, they can be missed by these monitoring systems that are looking for situations of, of more magnitude. Yeah. And also, you know, one other thing that I remember seeing too is it just blew my mind when, when I read some of the things that, you know, the, the type of big business that ransomware has evolved into um, and the different, they have call centers where <laughs> they will actually encrypt your data and then they will have you to call a phone number in order to um, negotiate, you know, how much your data is worth for you and trying to scope out whether or not you you have backups. In most cases, they do know if you have backups because they try to target and wipe out the backups as well. Where do you think we're headed with backup, recovery, storage, security? All, all of those things are kind of blending together nowadays with things like ransomware. I remember when backup was just backup. Archive was just archive. Now it seems like data protection and security, everything is kind of morphing together. All the different technologies are moving in that in that direction to protect everything. But where do you think we're headed from that perspective, Phil? I, I think you're spot on there, Demetrius, in that when I have conversations with IT organizations, they're no longer making that distinction between data protection and data security. And you and I have both been in this industry long enough that, as you say, those used to be distinctly separate activities within an organization. But it also happens at the business level. You know, the business guys don't make that distinction. And, and this is a scenario that, that really has the undivided attention of business leaders and IT leaders alike. It is, it is such, it is really the number one threat to organizations today. And you're talking about it being a big business. And you're absolutely right. And in fact, I think some of the um, most talented, if you if you will, if you want to use that term, most talented uh, programmers out there are often in the in the malware space. In fact, I like to say, if you really want to recruit good AI developers, go recruit from the bad guys. And in terms of future, I believe that it is artificial intelligence is the only way we're ever going to get ahead of these guys because. Right now, it's a situation of whack-a-mole. You know, they, they attack us in one area, we figure out how to defend it. They attack us in another area, and we have to defend that. So the only way to be proactive about that is really through artificial intelligence, which means going beyond monitoring and alerting, which is all about what you know, to being able to identify threats for things that you don't know, things that you have never been tried before, that you've never noticed before. So I think that's really where where we're going to be going with this over the next few years. Do you have any any examples of things that you've seen AI do just uh, overall? I know I, I've seen anomaly detection, where if there are 
things happening out of the ordinary, like your backups normally back up 1% worth of change data in your environment, and it balloons to 10%. That's an, an anomalous event, which should send off an alert. So that's one thing I've seen. What have you seen? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and what I think the, the future for that kind of thing is really when we start to get into the intersection of data logistics and data security combined with AI. So if you kind of want to think of a Venn diagram, I think it's really where you have data logistics and data security brought together through, through artificial intelligence. And when you think about it, if you take some of the, the data logistical principles, how is data normally handled? How is it normally accessed? How is normally moved? How is it normally protected? And you have an AI engine that can be taught those kind of factors. It can then detect very subtle kinds of changes in that sort of behavior, things that might slide under the radar of, uh, of a monitoring and alerting sort of tool to be able to find changes in, in behavior and changes that are, are over time. Now, one of the other important parts of these engines is being able to put in uh, false positives so that you can teach the, the system that when it alerted you to something that it would thought was wrong, it's like, no, nope, there's, there's a good reason for that. And there are going to be many of those, uh, but also being able to, to teach it to, uh, to understand what some of those evolutionary things are uh, over time. So I think it's really that capability of, of learning of how that data is, is used and how it is uh, moved through the system that will be very important to thwarting not just the, the kind of ransomware that we're talking about here, but also the data exfiltration and other things like that. Okay, and I also wanted to... Get, get your opinion as well on, I've, I've looked at the, the um, Bitcoin markets and they're, they're up and down. I think they just went down to 20,000 or something. It's just been a crazy ride. I, I won't ask you whether or not you, you have invested in Bitcoin, but I wanted to ask you, what, what do you see like blockchain technology, the, over, the underlying infrastructure underneath that's running some of these uh, different coins that are out there? And I've seen companies use blockchain technology um, as well. What, where do you see that being implemented within the data protection industry if, if, you, if you think it plays a role or not? I think it has the potential to play a significant role. Um, as an analyst, of course, one of my jobs is to prognosticate and, and for, uh, forecast the future. And some years ago, I had a briefing from Acronis, who I, I think ha actually has a pretty good blockchain implementation. But uh, when I saw that, I thought, you know, this, this really is the future, being able to validate that your, ac that your data is accurate, have chain of custody, you know, things like that. But I think the technology is apparently challenging enough that it really hasn't caught on the way I had thought it would, would take on. Uh, it certainly has a lot of applications in the industry, but I have not seen the data protection community jump on that bandwagon in, in nearly the way I thought they would. Yeah, it, it was fairly hot a couple of years ago when millionaires were created out of thin air, and it reminded me of Oh yeah. The um, what was that? Y two K and the internet boom. All these different companies were, these startup companies were just 
being created left and right and people were jumping off buildings because they 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 were millionaires overnight and then things crashed so we're kind of rolling into you know some of that right now with with the overall way that the industry and the economy is headed right now also one thing that's a little provocative uh physical tape what's your prediction there do you actually seeing tape dying in the near future like because it's been predicted a few a few times now that tape is dead it's going to die it's not going to be around what do you think well, I'll tell you a story about that, Demetrius. I, you know, I just told you I've, I've been in this industry 40 years. Actually, my very first foray into technology was back in 1981. I was a student in college, and I did an internship at uh, Storage Technology Corp., which at the time was known as STC. STK. Yeah. and, then, right. and they're, yeah. Well, it was originally STC, and then after really? they filed bankruptcy, they, they changed it to STK. So um, it goes back a long, long way. But with STC, the, the project that I was working on that summer, I was working in the marketing department of the product management group, and we were trying to come up with the product specifications for a new tabletop tape unit. And back in those days, it was reel-to-reel tape. So the big discussion is, was it going to be 800, 632-bit, 3200-bit uh, uh, technology or, or what? You know, that was the big discussion. But I do remember at the time, several of the executives in the company who are predominantly on the disc side of the business saying, why are we designing another tape system? Tape is dead. And that was 1981. So, so here we are 40 plus years later, and IDC follows the tape market now. Uh, we had actually dropped our coverage for a while, but because of the interest in it, we have, have renewed our coverage. And last year, for the first time in, I don't, re- recent memory for sure, the tape market actually grew. Now, I don't want people to get too excited because it's still under a billion dollars, but it grew 11% year over year, which I attribute almost exclusively to ransomware. Now, there are other factors in in there, you know, the big hyperscalers and, and major application platforms have figured out that Tape is a very economical way to, to store data and archive data for a long period of time. So there are a couple of things going on. But I really think it is that ransomware, that, that air gap capability. You know, back in my day when I pulled a tape off and stuck it on the rack, I didn't know I was creating an air gap. But that's pretty much exactly what, what people are doing today to, to help thwart uh, ransomware. Or you can call it a dust gap because those those tape gap, <laughs> exactly. gap got pretty dusty <laughs> sitting on a shelf there. I'm going to use that one. I like that. Oh, uh, man. Um, so I think we're up to what? LTO 9 now? Yes. I mean, yeah. it was LTO 2 or 3 when I started. And that was 1999, 2001. And it's just been trending like the LTO two, three, four. So it increases with capacity and compression and just I forgot how much how much data can be stored on one tape now. Is that like uh, I want to say like forty five terabytes, but but I could, you know, my, my memory could be wrong. But it it's a bunch and it and it doubles pretty much with every generation. Wow, I think that's fascinating that that the tape tape industry has continued to innovate and I think there's some some technology out there that that tape manufacturers are building into um, due to ransomware and they have different technologies as well. So I don't see tape dying anytime soon, just like the mainframe is is still around and beneficial for, you know, high powered 
data crunching and, and use from that perspective, right? Yeah, I, I can tell you uh, with a great deal of confidence that I started my career working on tape and I'm going to end my career working on tape. Mm. So I feel quite quite confident in that prediction. All right. And one final question for you, Phil, before we wrap up. What advice would you give to a, a CTO or CIO right now? Very open-ended question just from top of, top of mind. What do you think that they should be concerned about or what should they be doing to protect their data and their environment? I'm going to answer that with in a two-part answer for you, Demetrius. The first is to say that getting that handle on the ransomware is is critical. And, and we have five best practices that we specify. There's encryption, immutability, being able to, to scan your backups, being able to put in an air gap, and and being able to lock down that environment so that you don't have uh, the possibility of, of data being unrecoverable. Unrecoverable data is still the cardinal sin of backup and recovery. And yet research that we've shown shows that more than 50%, I think it was 54% of organizations have suffered an unrecoverable event within the last three years. A lot of that, oddly enough, is due to backup and recovery system errors or problems in, in the backup strategy more than, than ransomware. So blocking and tackling is, is still in vogue and is something that CIOs and CTOs need to pay attention to. The other issue is when you get into data protection for containers and container applications are really taking off. And I think you'd mentioned microservices a little bit earlier in the conversation. And of course, as we get closer to that application, as, as you and I were talking about a little earlier, what we're finding is that the implementation of these systems are involving more people than the, the storage group or, the, or even, uh, even the IT ops group, but really getting into the uh, DevOps team. And what I can tell you is if you go to the DevOps team and you ask them what RPO and RTO means, they're probably not going to know. By the same token, if you go to the storage guys and you say, what is a CI-CD pipeline? They're not going to know what that is either. And so there really needs to be that cross-pollination, that, that, that bringing together of the DevOps and the IT ops groups, because the DevOps group guys are going to be the ones who are implementing these systems, and it's going to be the IT ops guys who are going to be managing and looking after them. So it really is getting much more into teamwork between those two groups. So th those are really the two big things that I see that are needs within a lot of IT organizations. Okay, I like that. And you, you said something that stuck with me. I think you said the cardinal sin of backup. Yes. Is that what you said? Cardinal sin of backup is unrecoverable data. I think we have our podcast episode title there. There you go. <laughs> like that's a pretty cool title, the cardinal sin of backup. All right. And uh, before I let you go, any any uh, interesting books that you're reading right now, Phil? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's um, I don't know that I have any interesting books that I that I would pull off of my shelf right now. Uh, I can tell you, my wife and I have recently embarked with with kind of the, the new uh, Dumbledore movie that came out. We, we embarked on a pro project to go through and sequentially watch all the Harry Potter movies over again. So 
We're kind of having fun doing that. That's pretty awesome. I just dived into Stranger Things season four, which seems like they tried to make it scarier than the previous one, which I don't get. But yeah, they always try and up cool. their game a little it bit. Was cool. Yep. <laughs> All right, and remind me, I have to see the old, the old video I did back when I was at Rubric. We um, did a little spiff on Stranger Things. We called it Backup Things. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll send you the YouTube link to the video, and you're going to get a kick out of it. But if you're not a Stranger Things fan, then you may not get it. Well, I may, well, I may, may be off to watch Stranger Things. You're going to have to add that to the list. So add that to you and the wife's list so you can... You can be hip to the millennials and what they're what they're watching. Not to say that <laughs> you I'm mean one. I but... Communicate with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil. How can Gumbo listeners get in touch with you? Can they reach out on LinkedIn or what social media handles would you like to provide? Sure, LinkedIn is always good. Um, I also don't mind people contacting me directly through my uh, professional. Uh, email addresses, which is pgoodwin at idc.com. So they're welcome to do that. Awesome. Well, it's been great to uh, just really learn a lot more about the industry overall from infrastructure to backup and, you know, a little bit of blockchain, Bitcoin. I mean, we talked quite a bit about everything, which I love. I love since it's gumbo, right? Just throw it in the pot and talk about it, right? Hey, we started from the dawn of, of IT with the mainframe all the way up to what we see in the future. We covered a lot of ground. All right. Well, Phil, it was a pleasure. And uh, thank you for being on the gumbo. Hey, my pleasure, Demetrius. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.